Well, good morning. Y'all can talk to me, right? Yeah? It's great to be here. I am um, really honored to be included in, in a congregation's sort of liturgical rhythms, and especially to be included in, in your missions conference. It's a really special time of the year for you all, um, and I think it's a really special time of the year for some of the folks who've come back to be with you, and so um, your hospitality is, is a real gift. Um, like your pastor said, my wife and I spent 20 years living and working um, all over the world in parts of South Asia, um, the Middle East, and South America with um, women and children, little kids who were forced to um, fight in civil wars, little kids who lived in sewers and slums and refugee camps, um, women and children who were trafficked into the commercial sex industry, forced um, to prostitute, and uh, families impacted by the global AIDS pandemic. Right? Little kids who were orphaned because their parents had died from AIDS and many children who were born HIV positive themselves. And over 20 years, the community that I was a part of had, had um, established projects in, in, in 15 countries all around the world. And, and at our 20th anniversary, um, realized that we had buried over 700 of our friends, of uh, women and children who had died untimely, unexpected, unfortunate deaths, little kids who should still be with us today. We were giving ourselves vocationally to this sort of audacious notion um, that God is still good in a world that has legitimate reasons to question God's goodness. And so we were bearing witness to hope. And I think that's one of the things that we mean by mission when we come together and talk about mission. Right? Well, what we saw, what we saw in 20 years were a few very, very typical and very, very common thing, themes, and that was Folks typically do a better job of taking care of someone else than they do themselves. And if you can imagine, there's a, a real breakdown in integrity and credibility in that. We also saw folks try to move into very difficult neighborhoods that were under-resourced, underserved, um, very, um, very um, challenging parts of the world that, that were um, marked by, by real graphic suffering and extreme poverty. And, and we saw a, a real inability for people to stay, to practice stability to live in the neighborhoods. And then what we saw was a lot of people um, sort of teetering on the edge of burnout. And in fact, a lot of folks burnt out themselves. And that was tragic because we were, were serving alongside people who had very beautiful, compelling, captivating callings, right? Who just couldn't find the fidelity and the strength to sort of live into their vocations. And so a couple years ago, my wife and I put together a center, a Center for Contemplative Activism, so that we could sort of help people do good better. And when we say do good better, I had mentioned this this weekend at the retreat, that, that we say that very confessionally because we're still going to do good bad or poorly. We're still going to mess it up. We're still going to hurt ourselves. We're still going to hurt each other. There's still going to be these unintended harmful consequences of our best efforts and our, and our best intentions to try to build a better world. But how can we, right? How can we give ourselves to this calling that isn't actually reserved for sort of a, a few people in our congregations or communities, but that we're all invited into, right? This idea, this notion of mission. And, and I believe that how we do that is, 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 is nurture a, a deep contemplative spirituality that awakens us to our subconscious and our unconscious motivations, that grounds us in practices that are marked by solitude, silence, and stillness. And so this weekend, we, 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 we facilitated a retreat here actually on just that, solitude, silence, and stillness. And in 2014, solitude, silence, and stillness actually probably seems um, far, far away from how many of us nurture our spirituality, how many of us nurture our, our, our journeys towards God. 
But solitude, silence, and stillness are, are actually urgent corrections to the absurdity and the deficiencies of our lives. And so solitude, all right? Some of us are really afraid to be alone. Some of us are never alone. We go to the market. We, we have to bring someone along with us or we're on the phone with someone or we're texting someone while we're there. Some of us have lots and lots of roommates or in our homes have, have made space to include others. But some of you are still deeply lonely. And solitude actually teaches us to be present, to be present in relationships, to be present to ourselves, and then to be present to God who is always near, who's never left us. Silence, right? Uh, I think a lot of us are afraid of silence. We don't know what to do in those sort of awkward silent pauses when we're sitting with someone and we just have nothing left to say because actually we always have something to say. We're preoccupied in conversation. If it's not talking with someone, it's, 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 it's being distracted by our, our, our digital addictions. So it's our phones, right? We sit in front of the TV with a laptop and maybe an iPad and maybe our phone. We just cannot give ourselves to one thing anymore because we need so much stimulus in our lives. But silence, silence actually teaches us to listen, right? To listen to the voice that calls us beloved. And stillness, I, I think everybody actually does want to build a better world. I think probably in, in 2014, almost every person in this room is at least cause-driven with at least one issue that you care deeply about. And that's good and that's important. But, but, but sometimes I, I think we get ahead of ourselves and maybe we align ourselves with these causes or these issues to actually sort of project this, this sense of ego, this sense of self that looks maybe more concerned than we're actually willing to consider what the costs of that concern may be. Right? If we really want to um, fight for the freedoms of others, that will cost our own freedoms. And I don't think many of us are prepared to su surrender those. So stillness actually teaches us what proper engagement looks like. And I think as we come together to reflect on mission, to celebrate mission, to, to motivate a, a congregation around this idea that, that we could actually be sort of midwives to hope, right? That we need to ground these efforts, these intentions, these desires, our vocations in a deep contemplative spirituality, one marked by practices of solitude, silence, and stillness. And so what is mission, right? If we ground our social engagement, our, our missional impulse in this, what do we mean by mission? And, and I think some of us have reduced mission to, to merely words, and we've reduced mission to, 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 to sort of targeting individuals with this conversionist mentality. And we've ladled it with, with strategies rather than grounding it in theology. And we've allocated it to sort of the select few, the, the sort of professionals among us. But very simply, I think mission is bearing witness to hope that God is good in a world that has legitimate reasons to question God's goodness. I think mission is, is nurturing tangible signs of the kingdom of God among us, which may simply look like reconciliation or, or community being formed, Right? But I think mission fundamentally really is, is, is practicing resurrection, right? That's mission. Said it over and over again at the retreat, but Leslie Newbigin says that the, that the resurrection isn't the reversal of the defeat, it's the proclamation of the victory, right? That's mission. 
And so this morning I want to reflect. I want to reflect on signs of life and, and places of death. And what does it look like to practice resurrection? And how does solitude, silence, and stillness support that? And appreciated Bill reading the passage. We, we actually, we're, we're drawing that from John chapter 11. And there's about 40, 50 verses in there of a story of Jesus. And it was a story of Jesus and, and, and one of the dearest, closest friends that we understand Christ had. Right? This man named Lazarus. Right? One of these few people who've, who's died twice. And the uh, first time he died, um, his family, his friends knew he was ill. And if you um, are familiar with the story in John 11, if the scriptures are in front of you, or if you'll go back to them later, you may recall that, that um, when his family and when his friends knew that he was ill, they called for Jesus. And they said, hey, man, you got to come quick. This guy isn't going to make it. And so Jesus got the word, right? And instead of sort of going directly to Bethany, this little, little village, right, this place that was very, very special to Christ, many, many of our, our, our favorite stories from the Gospels come out of this, this sort of unlikely, awkward little spot, Jesus sort of takes the long way around to get to Bethany to show up for his friend, Lazarus. And on his way, um, Lazarus the, doesn't, doesn't make it. He actually dies. And he put him in a tomb, and his body begins to decay. Jesus shows up into Bethany, and, 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 and we read this this morning. Mary runs out to him because she's, she's mad. She's overcome with grief, and this is very true to our human experience. When we're upset, when we're hurt, when we don't know what to think with, about our feelings or how to deal with our emotions, we look for someone to blame. And so she sees him, and she says, if you just would have came, my brother still would have been alive. Right? She's blaming him. Jesus shows up and, and, and he sees the community overcome with grief, right? Days later, they're still broken up over this. And then I think one of the most beautiful eruptions of the humanity of Christ in the Gospels, we find this little, little tiny verse that says Jesus wept, right? He begins to enter into their suffering in solidarity and in pain. And then he says, let me see this guy. He's my friend. And he enters the tomb, right? And they warn him. They're just like, man, Jesus, his, his body is, has been in there for days. It's, it's terrible. But he enters that place of death, and he calls forward life, right? And I love the story because actually at the very, very end, as the resurrected Lazarus is standing there in front of his family, in front of his friends, his community, and Jesus, he's, he's still bound up in the grave clothes, right? Wrapped up. In, in linen, his hands are tied. There's a, a cloth over his face. And if that cloth was not removed, right, the man would likely have suffocated. If his hands were untied, he could not have unwrapped himself. And so Jesus says, you, friends, family, community, finish the miracle, right? You bring forward this. We do this together. You're the midwives of life, of resurrection. Now, like, I, I love the story because I, I, I see the solitude, silence, and stillness of Christ in sort of nuanced and tucked in between these verses, right? The people felt alone as if they were left in solitude without their teacher, without their healer. When they needed Jesus to speak the word of healing, there was silence. And at that moment of death, when actually Christ could have saved Lazarus, 
there was stillness. And, and I think sometimes when we think about solitude, silence, and stillness, we almost think of it at the expense of our communities. But I believe that if we do not build community around these contemplative practices, then we are not practicing resurrection, life. So I want to reflect. I want to reflect a little bit on some, some interruptions of resurrection, some illustrations of life. And, and I want to draw that from um, the great people of Rwanda who for the past 20 years have been giving themselves to the hard, undramatic work of reconciliation. Right? And um, if you take a notes, I'm going to make it really easy and really clear for you. I'm, I'm just going to say three things this morning. That as we practice resurrection... Um, that, that God is not absent, that we are not alone, and that resurrection happens in unlikely places. And I think in, 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 in a place like Rwanda, we, we see that very, very clearly. And so in the past um, 10 months, I've actually made two pilgrimages, pilgrimages of pain and hope to Rwanda. And as many of you know, we are sort of still in the 100 days commemorating the 20th memorial of Rwanda's tragic genocide that took over one million lives of moderate Hutu and Tutsis. In the course of 100 days, sort of the, the, the numbers are, are, are 400 people an hour were, 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 were slaughtered, were murdered, were killed by their neighbors, their own communities. And the world, as you remember, sort of stood by and, and watched in silence and, and, and almost sort of let it happen. And so as we've made pilgrimages back to Rwanda, we've made pilgrimages to sort of bear witness to, um, I think, the, the real signs of life there, the signs of resurrection. And not to allow Rwanda to be over-identified with its past, past, but to celebrate its present and, and, to, and to follow Rwanda into its future. And so my last trip, we, we met with um, survivors, survivors of the genocide, and we also met with the perpetrators those who were involved in the killings. We sat with the, the undramatic heroes of hope. We sat and, and, and shared meals with people who have really given themselves to cultivating and nurturing life. Incredible, inspiring, but, but also heartbreaking because as you can imagine, the stories, almost unspeakable stories, needed to be told needed to be brought forward so that folks like us could, could, could listen, could learn, and actually follow our friends in places like Rwanda to God's heart so that we could be converted into a new we, right? So one of the spots that we went to was this little village called Nyanje in western Rwanda, and it's actually, I think, sort of very similar to sort of Bethany, right? This funny little spot that's hard to locate on a map that not many folks know about or know of, but a place that has very special history and a very incredible people. And we went to a school, and um, this school was, um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's still operating, it's a, a school that folks from all over the country send their, their, their kids to. They're, they send their, 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 their students there to prepare so that these children, these young adults can enter good universities throughout the country. And so years ago, one afternoon, um, just as, as sort of dusk was, was, was setting, all the faculty, all the teachers had left campus and the, and the students had wrapped up dinner. A number of them gathered into a classroom to begin studying for an exam that they were going to have the following day. Well, a group of the extremists, right, some of the killers actually raided this campus, realizing that there were some Tutsi students there. 
The only adult working that evening was the watchman, and so they killed the watchman, and then they took over the grounds, the school grounds. And they found this, this study hall, this classroom, and they walked in the classroom with weapons drawn, they began to order the, the, the young people in this room to separate Hutu on one side, Tutsi on the other. And this young girl, right, Mujawamahorok Chantal stood up. Her name means maiden of peace. And she looked these men in the face and said, there are no Hutu or Tutsi here. We are all Rwandan. Powerful, right? Well, they shot her. They shot her in the head, killing her at her desk. And that girl's courage and that girl's solidarity inspired another student to stand up and say, there are no Hutu or Tutsi here. We are all Rwandan. And they killed that young boy. They killed six more students before they realized that these kids wouldn't give themselves up, wouldn't separate themselves. And so they rounded them up in another classroom. They pushed them back in the corner and they began throwing uh, firebombs and, and hand grenades in there and uh, left those, those students for dead. And somehow miraculously, none of those kids in that, that second classroom died, though every one of them were maimed, losing arms, losing legs. Many of them were, were, were blinded. But when we look at the, the witness, when we look at the life of Chantel, we know that we are not alone. In our solitude, we are not alone. The people in Bethany, when Jesus did not show up, were not alone. And that together, when we stand as one, right, we're stronger. Together, when we stand as one, we become the resurrected body of Christ in all of its limbs and wholeness, capable and able to perform the very simple task that God has called us to. We are not alone. Right? God is not absent. Silence. I think some of us are afraid of silence because in our prayers we have to fill it with words because we feel like God doesn't speak to us, because we feel like we haven't heard from God, because maybe actually some of us really doubt God. And so if we tell God what we think about God, if we ask God for what we think we need, if we ask God to, to forgive us for the things that we just can't forgive ourselves for, right, we feel a little bit better. But in silence, some of us feel that God is absent. And when we practice resurrection, we know one of the signs of life is that God is near, that God is with us, that God hasn't left us, that God loves us more than we want to be loved, that God is not as hard on us as we are on ourselves. And so just down the street from that school in Nyanja was a church. And actually, when I walked in this morning, it sort of weirded me out for a quick minute because the, the Basilica Nyanja was really about this size and, and really about this shape. And it was really one of the, the beautiful churches in the country. And when the genocide began in Rwanda, many of the Tutsi went to their churches, went to their, their, their basilicas, their cathedrals, their congregations, their parishes, thinking that they would be safe, that, that no one would actually enter a house of God and, and, and perpetuate these atrocities there. And in fact, in this small village, the priest, the priest at this, this big, beautiful church in Anja invited the Tutsi parishioners, right, his congregants, to the church building. And so over 3,000 people had gathered. They locked the doors from the inside. And of course, as the extremists came and took this village, they put an assault against this church, and it came under siege. 
They tried to blow up the walls and the facade would not give in. And so then they climbed up on the roof of the building and they, they poured fuel and gasoline into the church, hoping that as they would throw grenades through the windows, the gasoline would ignite and, and, and burn everyone alive. But man, the people were resilient and, and, they, and, they, and they resisted the assailants. They resisted them for 10 days. Incredible, right? So on the 10th day, the priest, the priest of that church actually went into town. He was a, a Hutu extremist himself. He went to a little pub. He found a couple guys who, who owned some tractors and, he, and, he, and in exchange for a couple cases of beer, he had them drive up this little hill and to use, and using their tractors, they, they pushed the walls of this church inside itself so that the ceiling collapsed and killed nearly every person inside. Right, the very man who at that very altar had, had, had offered the Eucharist to his congregation, had them killed. And those who survived the collapse of the building itself were actually shot as they tried to crawl away. And many of them shot by this priest himself. So we were there just a, a, a few weeks ago on what's left of that property. It's just the stone floor of where that congregation used to come and worship. And we were with a man, Ramasuraba, a sad man who wouldn't look us in the eyes, who was telling us this story. And told us this story because on the second day of the genocide, he thought his children and his wife would be safe if he left them with the pastor. And so he brought his little kids to that church. He brought his wife to that church and he never saw them again where the sacristy of that church once stood is now a little shed, and in that shed are the relics of what's left of that church, are the human remains, skulls and bones of some of the congregants, are the newspaper articles, are the registries, are some of the old hymnals that have been preserved. And as we listen to that man tell this story, heartbroken, overwhelmed, there are no words we could offer him, right? He said that he's never since stepped foot inside a church. But he said, God is innocent. And that God was not absent when my wife and when my children died. And I think it's a luxury for folks like us to say something like that. But in solitude, we actually come to experience that God is not absent. There are no words for it, in fact transcends our faculties, our experiences. But we are not alone and God is not absent. The last thing that I want to say is that resurrection happens in unlikely places. So on our last night in Rwanda, taking some friends, we'd been all over the country, we had really seen and heard some pretty, um, pretty difficult things, of course. My buddy brought me over to his house, this, this guy who lives in, in the city in Kigali, he brought me over to his house and, and, and uh, his wife actually wasn't expecting visitors. He just wanted me to meet her and he wanted me to meet his little girl. And so I walk into their, their little, little tiny home and, and, and she meets me at the door. I mean, just this, this beautiful young woman. She just had her hair done. Uh, she was um, watching TV, but suddenly she just welcomed me with, with, I mean, generous and lavish sort of 
kindness and hospitality. She took me by the hands and she sat me down on their couch beside the pretty little three-year-old girl who didn't speak any English. And so we're sort of fumbling around trying to communicate, trying to, to, to figure out what each other's names are. And with this sort of TV in the background and this sort of static, um, this woman, Abigail, goes into the kitchen to begin to prepare a cup of tea for me. And I sort of thought like I'd gotten through like my sort of pilgrimage of pain and hope to Rwanda. We had gone to many of the, 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 the churches that, that were more than 30 congregations were, were, were sites of large scale massacres. We had gone to many of the neighborhoods, the mosques, the communities, the community centers where, where killings had taken place. And I sort of just thought like, all right, we're, we're, we're sort of on the home stretch here. Just wanna have dinner with some few friends in town wrap this up and, and head home tomorrow. But as Abigail came back with, with a cup of tea, um, I, I could not help but think of her story. Something that I knew about her that she did not know, I knew. Her husband had told me that as a nine-year-old girl, her village came under attack when the genocide started. And early in the genocide, sorry, I don't know how to, how to say this better, but early in the genocide, the, the, the extremists and the perpetrators were sort of unpracticed killers. And so they were clumsy and awkward. And, and, and they told me that, um, friends have told me that people who died early in the genocide died worse, more painful deaths. And so early in the genocide, her village came under attack. And of course, um, the Hutu and, and, and some of the, I'm sorry, the Tutsi and some of the moderate Hutu were, were beaten to death killed with, with hammers and, and garden tools and, and machetes, and, and they were thrown into a pit, this mass, mass grave. And as a nine-year-old little girl, Abigail, was, was also beaten, left for dead, thrown into the, to the mass grave. Well, the next day, one of her classmates, a Hutu girl, jumped in the grave, was digging through the corpses, looking for someone who might be alive, one of her friends, one of her neighbors, and she came across Abigail unconscious, barely breathing. And she dragged that child's body out of the grave. And over the next several days and weeks, nursed this little girl, this little nine-year-old girl, back to health. Right, just like Jesus walking into the tomb. A little child put aside her ethnic identity, her racial construct, her, her tribal affiliations, not allowing herself to be over-identified with a fragment of who the whole of her identity was, and in a place of death, she saw life. She brought life forward. Resurrection happens in unlikely places. And it happens in the stillness of our hearts when we know how to respond. When we know what proper engagement, missional engagement, looks like. That no one takes anything from us, but like Christ says in John 10, I lay my life down. It was yours all along. And in solitude, silence, and stillness, many of us will begin to hear the voice of love. Many of us will begin to realize that we are not alone, that God is not absent, and that resurrection can happen, needs to happen within our communities, like it did in this village in Nyanja, like it did in Bethany, and actually like it probably can much easier in a place like Toronto. In a spot like this, super pretty, with a group like you, probably really smart, educated, resourced. God wants to use you more than you want to be used. 
and on our inability to submit and our resistance and our efforts to control God, to sort of tidy up our metaphors for the divine, to sort of sidestep what God may be asking us to do, some of us have failed to listen. Some of us have failed to be present. And many of us have failed to engage. And so this morning, I think that's the the simple invitation to practice life, to be a community that, that bears witness to hope, that is a midwife of love, that embodies resurrection as a tangible sign that the kingdom has come among us. And that is mission. And that is what we're called to. So let me pray that for us together. Is that all right? Lord, I thank you for this group, and I thank you for your goodness and your love and your mercy. Jesus, we thank you that you would include us in something as beautiful as cultivating tangible signs of your kingdom. Give us the courage to press into practices marked by solitude, silence, and stillness so that we will know we are not alone, that you are not absent, and so that resurrection can happen in unlikely places. We pray this in your name. Amen.